1: I wanted to say about the, uh, the 40 days of water fast. Um, I've said this each week, and I forgot to say it a minute ago, but it's very important that you realize one thing about this. If you didn't know it was happening, or for some other reason didn't start it, and you think that ah, it's too late now, I'm not going to do that, uh, we sort of debunked that as a myth in the first week. So it really is okay to start this today, or start it tomorrow. It's better to do a little thing than to do nothing at all. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, I think you would. <laughs> um, so Tiffany, where is Tiffany? There, right in front of me. Would you come up and? Tiffany has our first reading today, which is the Old Testament reading. You can just use this microphone here. All right.
0: this is First Samuel sixteen one through thirteen. The Lord said to Samuel, "How long will you grieve over Saul? I have rejected him from being king." Fill your horn with oil and set out. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears of it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do, and you shall anoint for me the one whom I named to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, "Do you come peacefully?" He said, "Peaceably I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice." And he sanctified Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, "Surely the Lord's anointed is now before the Lord." But the Lord said to Samuel, "Do not look at his appearance or on the height of his stature, as I have rejected him, for the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. He said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen any of these. Samuel said to Jesse, "Are your all your sons here?" And he said, "There remains yet the youngest, but he is keeping the sheep." And Samuel said to Jesse, "Send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here." He sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. The Lord said, "Rise and anoint him, for this is the one." Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. Samuel then set out and went to Ramah.
1: Thank you, Tiffany. Um, Nancy has our second reading, which is from the New Testament. Did you have our second reading? Yes. Oh, well, well, come right up then.
0: This is Ephesians uh, 5, verses 8 through 14. For once you were darkness, but now in the Lord you are light. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. Try to find out what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what such people do secretly. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible. For everything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Sleeper, awake, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you.
1: Thank you both. And uh, you've already heard our psalm reading at the call to worship. And so, the last reading that remains is from the gospel. And uh, as is tradition, I would like to ask you to stand for the reading of the gospel, which comes from John chapter 9. It's actually the entire chapter. So,. You'll have to stand for a minute, but that's okay. Speaking of Jesus, John says, As he walked along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. You must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva and spread the mud on the man's eyes, saying to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. Then he went and washed and came back able to see. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar began to ask, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some were saying, it is he. Others were saying, no, but it is someone like him. He kept saying, I am the man. But they kept asking him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus, made mud, spread it on my eyes, and said to me, go to Salome and wash. Then I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also began to ask him how he had received his sight. He said to them, he put mud on my eyes, then I washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not observe the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And they were divided. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him? It was your eyes he opened. He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but we do not know how it is that now he sees, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that anyone who confessed Jesus to be the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, He is of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind, and they said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, I do not know whether he is a sinner. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Then they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Here is an astonishing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but he does listen to one who worships him and obeys his will. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born entirely in sins, and are you trying to teach us? And they drove him out. Jesus heard that they had driven him out, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir? Tell me, so that I may believe in him. Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and the one speaking with you is he. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment, so that those who do not see may see, and those who do see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard this and said to him, Surely we are not blind, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would not have sin." But now that you say, we see, your sin remains. You can be seated. And I found this beautiful prayer of response from St. Patrick, which is a little bit late for St. Patrick's Day, but I'd like to use it anyway. Permit us not, O Lord, to hear your word in vain. Convince us of its truth, cause us to feel its power, and bind us to yourself with cords of faith and hope and love that never shall be broken. We bind to ourselves today, you our God. Your power to hold us, your hand to guide us, your eye to watch us, your ear to hear us, your wisdom to teach us, your word to give us speech, your presence to defend us. This day and every day, in the name of the blessed Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to whom be the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. That's why we are reading so much scripture during this season of Lent. Um, I think hearing the Word of God uh, is, there's a power in it, even if it's not exposited or explained by some smarty pants who went to seminary. (laughs) And so I hope that it's been worthwhile to you to hear those things, even though we haven't really been going into much detail about many of the passages. Um, And in fact, during Lent, we're, we're not only not focusing on all of the passages, we're focusing just for a short time on only one of the passages, and uh, then we're spending the rest of the time of our sermon together looking at a classical, traditional spiritual discipline, a spiritual practice. And it's my hope that, as we've looked at a couple of those already and we continue to look at them throughout the season of Lent, that you would find some new practical ways to connect with God. And uh, we've done fasting and talked about this water fast and lots of other ways to do that. And we talked last week about pilgrimage and uh, to, what it means to undertake a, an intentional spiritual journey or trip. Um, and in a little bit we'll talk about today's discipline. Um, but I want to look at the Scripture side of things first. And just like every week, there's, there's just so many things that we could talk about and we just don't have time. We could talk about that passage that Tiffany read, the, uh, the anointing of David. And it's so rich. There's so much stuff there about how God does not see how people see and does not judge on the same things that we judge on, on the outward appearance. We could talk about what that means, and then if that's true, why did the text also describe David as being very handsome? What what sense does that make? Um, We could talk about what it meant to anoint David the king of Israel and how Jesus later became the Messiah or the Christ. Both words mean anointed one. And so how David is a, is a type for Jesus comes later. Um, we, could, we sure could talk about Psalm 23, which was the call to worship this morning. It's the most famous song ever written, probably. Um, it's Contrary to public opinion, it's not Rebecca Black's Friday, Friday. That is not the most popular song ever written. <laughs> uh, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, um, just consider yourself lucky and don't go Google it later because it's a really terrible song. What I want to focus on is that gospel story, the story of the man who was born blind and received his sight. And even that story we could talk for hours about, um, not just because it was 41 verses long, um, but there's just so much there. Uh, We could talk about the tendency to believe that human suffering is the result of somebody's specific sin and that you can draw a line from the sin to the suffering. It might be him or it might have been his parents, but somebody did something wrong. We could talk about how there's this perception that faith is something that's inherited from one's parents or otherwise from one's spiritual ancestors. Um, we could talk about what it means to be an adult in the faith and to, to speak for yourself, just as the, the, blind, the man born blind did. But I want to focus specifically on one part of that passage. And, and the part that I want to focus on is, is uh, what the man said about Jesus toward the end of the passage. He's, he's one of my favorite Bible characters. I mean, my favorite is Jesus, but, um, <laughs> right, isn't your favorite Bible character Jesus? Kind of like he has to be. Um, <laughs> um, but the man born blind is one of my favorite Bible characters uh, because he's so blunt, and he doesn't like to repeat himself, apparently, and he's a little bit sarcastic, and he says things that get him in trouble because he doesn't think about what he's about to say, um, Do you recognize these traits in anybody else you know? Uh, (laughs) So I I like him because I I see a little bit of myself in him somewhat. But after the man is healed, you may remember, the Pharisees interrogate him. They begin this investigation. In fact, I think the the editor's heading in our Bibles here actually say the Pharisees investigate this claim. And what they want to do is find an excuse to condemn Jesus. They don't really care about the man and his blindness and his healing, except that it may offer them a vehicle by which they can condemn Jesus. Now, you see um, a little bit into the passage in verse 22 that they'd already decided that anybody who confessed Jesus as the Messiah was going to be cast out of the fellowship of the synagogue. And so we know they've made up their mind about Jesus. And so what they're doing is researching and investigating and trying to find that one thing that, that they can do, that they can use to, to cast Jesus out. And what they think they may have had, what they think they may have found is that Jesus has broken the Sabbath. The uh, Jewish rules at the time of Jesus for observing the Sabbath, and still today if you're an Orthodox Jew, are fairly strict and specific. And making mud on the ground would have been classified as work. And healing, as we see in other passages in the Gospels, may also have been classified as doing work on the Sabbath when you're supposed to rest. It's one of the Ten Commandments after all. That's probably the one that we break the most, by the way. Um, approximately weekly, I think we do. But, um, so they think that they can catch him in this. And so they, they ask the man, and he tells them what happened, and they don't quite get what they need, so they think they're going to go to the parents. And they talk to the parents. And, and you note their tone when they talk to the parents? Is this your son who you say was born blind? They don't exactly bury the lead, the Pharisees. They pretty much kind of already have it in their mind, what their analysis of whomever they're talking to. And the parents want nothing to do with the controversy. They know that if they say too much about Jesus, that they will be cast out of their religious fellowship. Uh, and it's not like today where you can just go start another church um, if somebody kicks you out of one. This was it. This was their opportunity for, for spiritual community. And so they said, ask him. He is of age. Ask him. And the Pharisees come back to the man. And this particular part of it starts in verse 24. And that's where it gets, in my opinion, really good. Um, They go back to him a second time. And they say, again, not exactly burying the lead. Give glory to God. We know that the man is a sinner. Stop beating around the bush. Just agree with us so that we can convict him. And I love what the man says. I love the man's response. And here is where we ought to pay attention and learn something for ourselves about what we need to say about Jesus. Verse 25, he answered, I do not know whether he is a sinner. (laughs) It's a pretty remarkable thing to say. Maybe he is, maybe he isn't. One thing I do know I just hear the humor in this. I don't know if you guys hear the humor in this. I don't know whether he's a sinner, but one thing I do know is a week ago, I couldn't see, and now you may notice that I can. (laughs) He only knows what he knows. He's not afraid to talk about it, but he only knows what he knows. I am not going to speak to the intricate spiritual religious debate that you apparently want to engage me in. I have told you what happened. You didn't like it. I couldn't tell you whether he's a sinner or not, but I do know that he healed me and I can see now. (laughs) Do you hear the little bit of sarcasm starting to bite through there in his words? I love this guy. And then, (laughs) just as I often do, he goes one step too far. (laughs) He probably would have been okay with with the slightly passive sarcasm that maybe or maybe not they wouldn't have picked up on. But when they ask him one too many times to tell the story of what happened to him, (laughs) here's what he says. Verse 27, I have told you already, and you would not listen. And then he steps over the line and says, why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? (laughs) When I say something like that where I've just stepped over the line just by one step, I get this feeling in my heart, like, oh, crap, I did it again. (laughs) (laughs) What's going to happen to me now? And what happens to him now is that he, not his parents, and not Jesus, is cast out of fellowship with the believers. Because he gets a little too smart. (laughs) With the spiritual religious experts in his community. But what I'd like you to take away from this is that he is not afraid at all, apparently to the point of rashness and maybe even stupidity, to tell the true story of his experience with Jesus. He is not afraid to boldly tell what happened when he met Jesus. The consequences of that were that he was separated from his spiritual community. But the benefit of that is that he was invited into a new and much more important and basic spiritual community. A community that comes from confessing to Jesus, I believe, and calling him Lord. Lord. The man is not afraid to boldly stand up and tell his story of faith. Sometimes I think we are. I am. And by the way, the the conclusion of this story is really wonderful, and we just don't have time to jump into that. Um, I wish I had time to finish up the passage and and talk about the idea of spiritual blindness and spiritual sight and uh, how utterly dense the Pharisees actually were right to the end of this story. They, they just don't get what Jesus is talking about. Um, we don't have time to dive into that, so um, please do read through that story some more at home and, and make special, give special attention to the end of that story. Uh, and by the way, if you don't have a Bible at home, there's Bibles under your chairs, and you're welcome to take one of these uh, as our gift to you. And you can, we have lots and lots of them, and, and uh, as far as I know, they're printing more, so we can replace them. So please, and we occasionally do, because people do take them home please do take one. But uh, for now, I want to move on and talk about this week's discipline. The spiritual discipline that we are talking about today, unlike the previous two and unlike the ones that will follow, is not one that has been written about in any of the three books that I'm using um, to research spiritual disciplines. I'm using three different texts, um, and maybe I'll tell you about what they are at some point, and if you have questions, you can talk to me afterward. But um, a lot of the classical spiritual disciplines are repeated in several of the books that, I've, that I read about this topic. But this discipline, today's discipline, is not mentioned in any of them. Which is kind of interesting because it's obviously a historical practice. Today's uh, spiritual discipline is testimony. And you can see testimony, the, the act of telling one's story, throughout church history, and in fact, all throughout the New Testament. Today's story of the man born blind is a great example of people telling the story of, of what happened in their experience with Jesus. And that's how I'll define the discipline of testimony. Very simple. Testimony is telling the story of your experience with Jesus. Telling the story of your experience with Jesus. Um, when I said the word testimony, many of you probably had images of a courtroom because that's the context in which we most often use the word testimony. Testimony. Uh, and some of you have been in courtrooms, and testimony can be an uncomfortable, grueling experience. Uh, and uh, all of us have watched court TV dramas, and um, whether whether it's Judge Judy or Law and Order, depending on whether you're highbrow or lowbrow, we've all... <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm a Judge Judy guy myself, but um, we, have <laughs> we have all seen testimony given. And the cross-examination can be sometimes very difficult. And, and so it's a little bit scary to think about testimony if that's your, uh, if that's your uh, grid, to use a word that Ryan and Carolyn sometimes use when they talk about their life experience. If your grid for testimony is just uh, law and order, or Matlock for some of the elderly folks in the room, um, <laughs> that might make, make you a little bit scared of testimony, because who's going to be convicted at the end of this story, and who's going to go to jail, or are they going to cross-examine, and suddenly I'm on trial. um, But in other ways, that metaphor of testimony is fairly accurate in that when you give testimony, all that you're being asked to do is tell the truth. What kind of truth? (laughs) The whole truth, and nothing but the truth of what you have witnessed or experienced, so if you're called to testify, all you can do is tell what you know. And in fact, in a court of law, if you try to go outside the bounds of what you know, if you start to talk about what you have heard or what you believe to be true or what you think might have happened, that will be stricken from the record. And so maybe you can find some comfort in that. If I'm going to ask you to give testimony to your experience, to tell your, story, your experience of your story with Jesus, or to tell the story of your experience with Jesus, excuse me, then all you'd be asked to do is to tell what happened. Look at the, the man who was born blind. He did this probably to a fault. He refused to speculate on the questions that they were asking him because he didn't know the answer. But he did tell the story of what happened. And it's such a wonderful, surprising story of testimony if you think about it. If you, were going to, if you were John and you were going to write a story of all the things that happened to Jesus and you wanted it to be used, as John says, he wants his gospel, gospel to be used so that people might believe in Jesus and believe he's the one sent from God to give new life. That's what John says the gospel is written for. You might have written it a little bit differently. You may have said, well, at the end of the story, the man kind of he begins to, it gets to dawn on him who Jesus really is. So let's just correct his theology at the beginning of the story And so when they say, is he a sinner, the man boldly would say, of course he's not a sinner. He's the Messiah sent from God, spoken of in the prophets, and prefigured by our great king David. And he might have given a soliloquy or a monologue. That's not what John wrote. John wrote what actually happened, which is that the man was confused, and he didn't know the answer to their deep theological, doctrinal, debate-fueling questions. All he knew is what had happened to him. You see, the act of giving testimony is not the same thing as the act of reciting doctrine. It's merely the act of telling the story as it actually happened to you. Because here's something that I've observed. And I would go so far as to say every case, but we could say, almost every single case of people coming to faith, a real experience with Jesus precedes complete accuracy of theology, complete orthodoxy, you might say, complete assent to what the church has always taught and to perfect doctrine. Every instance of experiencing Jesus in the New Testament supports this claim. The people who experience Jesus have a real encounter with him and meet God through that encounter before they know everything about who he is or what he's sent to do. Certainly before they have, you know, some 5th century understanding of Christology. I like the 5th century understanding of Christology, by the way. I think we all ought to know it and believe it. Eventually. (laughs) Interestingly, if you look in the Bible, the ones who actually know exactly who Jesus is are the demons. And Jesus very often shuts them up and doesn't allow them to say it. So the discipline of testimony is so important. It's so important to tell your story because it's a powerful way of continuing to live in the direction that God has given you. if you're a married person or if you're in a romantic relationship of any kind, do you sometimes talk to each other and think back to when you first met? Do you sometimes tell each other that story again? And you feel this the spark. It's almost like you're transported back to that moment when you first knew that this was real. Tracy and I do that sometimes. We talk about the story of how when, when we first met. And I think it... It, it's a way of maintaining uh, the passion in our relationship. And sometimes I even do this with my son, Abel. He's six and a half. And, but I, I, sometimes I, I, I sit him on my lap and I love to talk to him and tell him about when he was real little, the things that we used to do and how I would hold him and he'd fall asleep on my shoulder or how he would be crying and I'd stand up and walk around with him and listening to Johnny Cash and, until he finally fell asleep. And he loves to hear these stories, and we're rec- I'm reciting, I'm retelling, reenacting the story of our bond. And it helps him to understand it in a, in a deeper way. I think the same thing is true when you start to tell the story of your love for Jesus and his love for you. If you think back to the times when he's been very close That can get you through the times when he seems sort of distant. Because you remember, you feel it in your heart. You're reminded by the Holy Spirit, in my opinion, that's what's happening, that this is real. This faith was based on something real. It draws your heart back to the start of things. Many of you um, stood up last week when I ask you to respond if you felt God was calling you up and out of the, the, the stuckness of your spiritual past into something new and exciting and maybe terrifying. And I asked, uh, asked you to stand up if that was true for you, and, and uh, a bunch of you did. And then I also, you may remember, asked you to talk with me about that or write me or put it on an info card what, what your experience was. And, and almost everybody who stood up last week did so. And I, it was so encouraging to me to hear those stories, um, even the ones that were rooted in difficulty and, and fear in some cases, or, or at least trepidation. But th- the reason that I asked you to do that is because it's the first little step. It's giving a, just a very simple testimony of what happened. And it fuses some neurons in your brain or something like that. I I'm not a I, I don't understand science. Um, <laughs> even enough to know whatever science I was just making up on the fly. But, but something something switches in your head and in your heart when you start to tell your story. Isn't that true? So it's important to share your story so that you can be strengthened by reliving that experience with God. That's the first reason why I think it's important to to practice the discipline of testimony. The second reason it's, it's important to give testimony, in my opinion, is to build each other up in the faith. That's why on our fifth Sunday festivals, we take a break from hearing a sermon and we just hear from each other. And I ask you to stand up and tell stories of God at work in your life. And isn't that really great to hear those stories from people who we know, who we may just get coffee with, or we may have friendships with, or See so walking around and don't know them, suddenly they're talking about the very real experience they've had with God. Isn't that doesn't that strengthen your faith to hear those stories? And so if you give testimony of your experience with Jesus, you can be part of strengthening somebody else's faith. And the third reason to give testimony is so that people who do not believe might hear your story and begin to come to their own faith. And this is where it gets a little bit scary, <laughs> because we're kind of afraid of evangelism. I think in the church in general, we are afraid of, of proselytization. And, you know, I think that, that comes out of, a, out of an admirable sense that we people who are children of the 21st century have, which is that we don't want to impose ourselves on their people. We don't want to force our particular beliefs on them. We don't want to invalidate their own experience. And all of those things are, you know, that's an admirable place to be. But I do think we are called to tell our story. Now, remember, what it's not is telling someone else the doctrine that they must believe. That's why I think we're so squirrely about evangelism, because our picture of it is the guy with the megaphone. I went into, we went to a hockey game the other night, and as we were going into Blue Cross Arena, there was, there was two guys standing on the, the curb, at whatever appropriate legal distance they needed to maintain, shouting at people. And, you know, God bless them for, for answering the call of God in their life as they perceive it, but I, every time I see that, I wonder, what, what good is this doing? Maybe it's a personal style. But they were talking about doctrine they were talking about what's going to happen to you if you don't believe the exact right thing. It's an important question to consider, by the way. But that's not what I would... That's a, whatever that is, it's a different category from the discipline of testimony. So let me set your hearts at ease. If you don't think you can stand on the curb of uh, South Avenue and, and preach in a loud voice to people, that's okay because it's not what I'm calling you to do today. <laughs> God calls you to do that some other day You better listen, but um, what I'm talking about today is just simply telling the story of your experience with Jesus. That's a little bit easier to do, right? Because that usually happens in the context of a relationship with somebody else. Because sometimes we don't own all the doctrine, do we? (laughs) We talked last week about how when we recite the Apostles' Creed together, sometimes we feel like we have to put a question mark at the end of some of those lines. Do I actually, is that really what I believe? Because we have moments of doubt. Or because we're very young in the faith and we haven't figured everything out. Or because we're very old in the faith and we haven't figured everything out. You don't own the doctrine, but you do own your story. And I think telling your story is a really important discipline, a spiritual practice. That's what this is. When you tell your story, your, your real honest story, I think it opens a little bit of a window so that the breeze of the Holy Spirit can blow into the living room of someone's soul. If that metaphor seems a little strained for you. Uh, let me remind you that the, the biblical word for spirit, in both Hebrew and Greek actually, is, is wind or Breath. And that's the picture I'd like to leave you with. The the spiritual discipline of testimony opens a window in your heart and in the hearts of those around you. It lets the warm air of the Spirit of God enter in. Keeps your spiritual house fresh. Thaws you from the deep freeze of winter in your soul. It's about time here in Rochester for us to start opening the storm windows, right? We almost did it a couple weeks ago. And if we had done, we'd be feeling really dumb right now. <laughs> some, some of us are feeling really dumb right now. But, <laughs> 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 um, but you know that feeling you get the first time you open the window and you, that air just comes in. And you realize how stale your house actually was. How many months you'd been just sealed in there, pumping dust through the ducts in your house and breathing that stale, dry air and the, the windows come open and the breeze comes through and suddenly it's like we're a, com- a completely different species of human being. <laughs> that's, the, that's what happens when you tell your story. It opens that window in your soul and in the souls of your friends and in the souls of people who don't yet know Jesus and haven't yet had their own experience with him. So let me, uh, in closing, encourage you to find a way this week that you can practice the discipline of testimony. If you want to start with something easy, you can simply talk to me. I'm a nice guy. I have a little fake fireplace in my office. You know, we can have a nice, quiet conversation in there. I have email you can write. <laughs> you can text message me. Um, Some of you are ready for something a little bit more bold, and you might want to talk to somebody else in the congregation. Um, And maybe you want to be praying about about what relationship you already have here, where you, you might be able to open somebody's window a little bit wider. And others of you may be feeling like God is calling you to be really brave and to give your testimony, to give your story of your experience with Jesus to somebody who you know who doesn't understand what that even means so as I close in prayer, meditate on those categories of testimony and think about which one you might want to practice this week. Thank you, God, for the wonderful story of this man who was born blind and the testimony that he gave, and for the fact that we see in him the common failings of humanity. Now, he doesn't exactly know everything that's right, he doesn't exactly know when to stop talking. He gets frustrated. And uh, it's my prayer, Jesus, that as we think about the stories that we have with you, we would use that man as a model. That we would simply tell what happened when we met you. That we would, we would, we would resist the temptation to say more than that. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would speak the rest of the story, that we would open the window to our souls and to others' souls, and that your warm air would come in, and that you would call them to the faith uh, of the man who was born blind, just as you've called us to that same faith. We pray these things in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. We celebrate communion every week here in part because it is an act of testimony. The sacrament of communion is, we talk about it in many different ways, and one of the ways that we sometimes talk about it is as a reenactment, a retelling of the drama of the gospel story. And so, even the Apostle Paul says this in 1 Corinthians, that as often as you take this bread and this cup, you proclaim his death until he comes. Interesting that Paul would use the Lord's Supper as proclamation. We would think that, you know, proclamation is standing on the corner saying exactly what it is. But no, in fact, celebrating communion together is an act of proclaiming the Lord's death until he returns. And so, maybe today... You would make that your particular focus as you participate in communion, and our table is open to anyone who would would want to do that, to proclaim the death of Jesus in all its meaning and purpose for our lives. So we'll continue to worship in song, but the table is open now, uh, and I invite you as the Lord invites you to come.